Thank you, Amy and Krista, for that ministry in music. Some families bear a very strong family resemblance. You can pick the family members out in a crowd. One of the very common questions to ask the parents of a newborn is, who does the baby look like? Often a reply is something like, well, it's got, he has his father's eyes or her mother's mouth. Nothing derogatory in that comment. <laughs> Didn't realize how that was going to come out. <laughs> Forgive me. I have done wrong. Okay. Ladies, love me anyway. That's what this, this is about this morning. Love your enemies. Well, as children of the Heavenly Father, we are to bear his resemblance. We are to be like him. There is to be that family resemblance. Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. This morning we're going to be talking about the characteristic of God's love and how we are to reflect and show forth the love of God. Now if there's any subject that has been overdone, it's the subject of love. In fact, it can become so trite because we hear it constantly in our culture about loving and making love and all of the innuendos about, about love. But Christian love really is unique. Everything else is a cheap imitation. The love of God is far superior than to any love that this world knows. So we need to be, in this passage, salt and light. That is, we are to provide a taste, if you will, and a glimpse of the love of God in our society so that it might transform our society into that which brings honor and glory to God. So the theme this morning is, in being salt and light in this world, we are to love our enemies by seeking their good, even as God the Father does. Key verses are Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 and 44. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is the last of the six examples that Jesus gives as to how the righteousness that the disciples are to manifest is to be greater than the righteousness that the scribes taught or practiced. The duty to love one's neighbor is not a new concept. It is demonstrated in the words in our text, You have heard, Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor. The Old Testament specifically admonishes us to love our neighbor in Leviticus 19.18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
I am the Lord. However, the second half of the verse, namely, and hate your enemy, is nowhere to be found in the Old Testament. If you have a New American Standard, one of the things that I like about the text of the New American Standard is that it uh, sets apart in capitals quotations from the Old Testament. So if you have a NASB translation this morning, you will see that love your, uh, that we are to love our neighbor is in capitals. Hate your enemy is not in capitals because it's not a quotation from the Old Testament. It's not taught in the Old Testament. However, it's the way in which the Pharisees interpreted Leviticus 19, 18. They reasoned it as a corollary, an unexpressed duty. You are to love your neighbor. And they emphasized the word neighbor. You are to love your neighbor. And so they reasoned that the logical and just corollary was, and you hate your enemy. However, the Pharisees failed in their understanding of their duty to love one's neighbor in two ways. First, by limiting love of one's neighbor to a love of their fellow Jews. They did not even see a necessity to love foreigners. This is what the rich young ruler, this is what prompted the rich young ruler to ask Jesus, who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied with the parable of the Good Samaritan, a foreigner. And in that instance, that foreigner was a neighbor. But that's not just a New Testament concept either. The Old Testament did in fact state that one was to show love to a foreigner as well. Leviticus 19.34 The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you are aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So that is not new. You are to love the stranger that is among you. The Pharisees did not practice that. At best, they did it in word, but certainly not in deed. Reminds me of an incident that happened to me a number of years ago when I was on vacation, in fact, a lot of years ago. The, the children were quite, quite young. We went to Williamsburg, Virginia, and uh, we searched out a church to attend on Sunday. We ended up going to a, a very small Baptist church. We arrived, we, we sat down, and the service began. And then evidently it was their practice in the beginning of the opening part of the service to recognize any visitors. We were the only visitors there. So we were singled out, we were told to stand, we stood up, and the pastor asked, where are we from? I said, well, we live near Hershey, Pennsylvania. He said, welcome. We are glad you are here this morning. And then he addressed the congregation. And he said to the congregation, now I want you to understand, no one dislikes Yankees more than I do. 
But the scripture says, we've got to love them. So I hope that you show them love this morning. You know, I just didn't feel the love. (laughs) Somehow that didn't quite make it. Somehow that, to me, was kind of love in name only. It was a command, but it certainly wasn't heartfelt. Certainly the, the same could be said of the Jewish individuals and their practices. But Jesus goes beyond saying that not only are we to love the stranger or the foreigner, but now Jesus says we're to love those who truly are our enemies. Notice Matthew 5, 44. But I say to you, love your enemies. Again, that formula you have heard, but I say to you, as he continually raises the bar, as Jesus said, I came not to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. We might ask the question in seeking to justify ourselves, just as the rich young ruler did, who is my enemy? Oftentimes, people are treated as enemies through guilt by association. For example, during World War II, as you know, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, and we were at war with Japan. They were our enemies, as it were. But as I look out over the congregation, you know, there are relatively few people that can remember World War II and all that took place. Most of us know about it from a history book. And some of it we may have forgotten and some we may never even have known. Would it surprise you to find out that in the United States of America, we had 10 concentration camps for Japanese descendants, for American citizens who were of Japanese descendants. Listen to this, and uh, I'm going to be quoting from a uh, ushistory.org website, and uh, this is what is posted, and I quote, over 127,000 United States citizens were imprisoned during World War II. Their crime? Being of Japanese ancestry. Despite the lack of any concrete evidence, Japanese Americans were suspected of remaining loyal to their ancestral land. Anti-Japanese paranoia increased because of a large Japanese presence on the West Coast. In the event of a Japanese invasion of the American mainland, Japanese Americans were feared as a security risk. Succumbing to bad advice and popular opinion, President Roosevelt signed an executive order in February 1942, ordering the relocation of all Americans of Japanese ancestry to concentration camps in the interior of the United States. Evacuation orders were posted in Japanese uh, American communities, giving instructions on how to comply with the executive order. Many families sold their homes, their stores, and most of their assets. They could not be certain their homes and livelihoods would still be there upon their return. 
Because of the mad rush to sell, properties and inventories were often sold at a fraction of their true value. Internment camp barracks. After being forced from their communities, Japanese families made these military-style barracks their homes. Until the camps were completed, many of the evacuees were held in temporary centers, such as stables at local racetracks. Almost two-thirds of those living in these camps were Japanese Americans born in the United States. It made no difference that they had never, ever been to Japan. Now listen to this. Even Japanese American veterans of World War I were forced to live in these camps. Even people who had fought and defended this nation in a previous war were forced to live in these camps. The last part was my commentary, end quote. So, even people previously serving this nation were treated with suspicion. Let's fast forward to today. How do we view Arabic individuals in our country after 9-11? What's striking to me is that we have become much more sensitized today than we were back in the days of World War II when we were rounding up Japanese individuals and placing them in concentration camps. No one is advocating today that we round up everybody of Arabic descent and place them in a concentration camp. In fact, we have gone quite the other direction. And that is, now, it has actually become illegal in this country to do any kind of racial profiling whatsoever. Law officials are forbidden by law to treat an individual with suspect simply because of their national origin, simply because they are a descent of a particular people group. For example, it's illegal to pull an individual over and search their car simply because they look like they are Arabic. Is that what Jesus is about? Is that what he's addressing? Is Jesus saying we need to love people that we view as our enemies but really aren't our enemies? Jesus is saying more than give people the benefit of the doubt or don't be prejudiced. You see, our world recognizes that degree of forgiveness of enemies. No, Jesus said, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus, again, not only corrects the misunderstanding of the Pharisees, but raises the bar still higher. Not only does Jesus teach the exact opposite from hating our enemies to loving our enemies, but Jesus also addresses who our enemies are. Jesus is not simply talking about enemies that are enemies simply by association, like the Hatfields and the McCoys. 
you know, those two feuding families. And they were enemies simply because they were Hatfields or they were McCoys. And when a Hatfield wanted to marry a McCoy, it was unthinkable. And it actually ended in death because they hated each other. Jesus is not only talking about loving, well-meaning people who sometimes say or inadvertently do hurtful things. Jesus is talking about loving very real enemies. People who are hostile to us, people who are seeking our harm, people who would love to see our destruction. Notice verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You see, in the parallel of this verse, enemies are people who persecute you. People who would like to stamp out your faith and maybe you along with it. People that would throw you into jail. People that would insult you. And yes, people even that may threaten or ultimately take one's life. Are we to take that literally? Are we to take that seriously? Is that, is that what Jesus intends? Is that what Jesus is asking us to do? Well, again, Jesus said, I came not to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. I came to faithfully teach the law, and I came to obey the law. And so Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus met that righteousness. He said, I say to you, pray for those who persecute you. And of course, that is exactly what Jesus did when he hung upon the cross. In Luke chapter 23, verse 33 states, And when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. Remember that was last week when they talked about those that would want to take your garment? Well, you, you give them their, their cloak. Here, Jesus is doing the very thing that he told his disciples to do, and that is he prays for those that are nailing him to the cross. Those that are bringing about his death. And he's asking that God the Father would not hold it against them. He's not talking about their eternal well-being. He's talking about that moment. That moment. May God not strike them down dead for this blasphemous act that they are performing. He's praying for the Father to spare their lives. So you see, it's going far, far more than what we just saw last week where it says that uh, not an eye for an eye or a tooth for tooth, but, but instead of giving them justice, 
Go one better. Now, Jesus ramps it up to say, love your enemies. Why are we to love our enemies? Three reasons. The first reason is that we are to love, uh, excuse me, the first reason is that we are to be light in this world, which means we are to reveal or shine forth or radiate the love that our Heavenly Father has. In this Sermon on the Mount, and we've taken a long time going through it, so we may have lost some of the segments along the way, but Jesus said, you are the light of the world. Men don't light a lamp and put it under a bushel. We are to let it shine. We are to reveal God. We are to give people a glimpse of who God is. And one of the ways that we give that glimpse is by loving our enemies, for that is the will, the desire, and the nature of our Heavenly Father. Notice verse 45. In order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven... For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Now when it says that you might be the sons of your father who is in heaven, he's not talking about the way to heaven or the way of becoming a son. He's saying that is what a son does. A son is like his father. And you are sons, therefore you are to love your enemies because... That's what your father does. He loves his enemies. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. He rewards the evil with good. You know, and sometimes, even as Christians, we can lose sight of that truth and and begin to scratch our heads and wonder. Have you ever wondered why the ungodly uh, prosper? Have you ever said to yourself, life isn't fair? You know, here I am and I have this illness and there's this other person who is living this horrific life and they're in good health. Or why do I have a hard time paying my bills and here's this other individual and I'm not sure that they've gotten all their money in a legitimate and appropriate way and yet they have prosperity. The Bible says you can't determine a a person's standing with God based on did it rain on their garden or not. Whether their roof falls in or not. That's not how God works. But it seems so far-fetched to us that sometimes we even lose sight of that and wonder why the evil prosper? Answer, because God is gracious, God is merciful, and in this life, in this present time, he is not rewarding evil with evil. And so we are to be like him. Second reason we are to love our enemies is because we're to be salt in this world, which necessitates that we be different from this world. We're supposed to give this world a taste of things to come. Notice verse 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? 
Do not even the tax gatherers do the same? And if you greet your brothers only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? What big deal is it if you show love to the person sitting next to you? Even people in secular organizations treat people in their organizations with, with kindness. These two imageries, the tax gatherers, they were the scum of the earth in the New Testament. They were, were people that were greatly hated. And you may not like to pay taxes, but this doesn't equate to today. The tax gatherer was really hated for two reasons. First of all, the taxes that they were gathering were for the Roman government, and the Roman government was hated because they were under oppression of Rome. And, and the Jewish leaders even argued about whether they should have to pay taxes to Rome at all in the first place. Then they were hated because they were Jewish. The Roman government was smart enough to realize that it probably wasn't a great idea to be sending Romans in to tax Jewish people. And so they hired Jewish people to collect the taxes from their fellow Jews. So these Jews that were now collecting taxes were viewed as traitors and they were not considered to be good and holy Jews. And then lastly, the way that tax collectors were paid is that they basically worked on a commission. A commission that they themselves established. In other words, there were X amount of dollars that was to be collected. Anything above the X amount of dollars that was collected, they could keep. And there was no limit placed by the Roman authorities as to how much they could collect. Whatever they thought they could get from somebody, that's what they collected. The more they collected, the more they made. And so these guys were greatly disliked. But it says even the tax gatherers, even those awful people love those who love them. So what's unique about that? You see, we need to be different from the world around us. And so being indifferent, different from the world around us, let me just say a few things. Even our secular culture has repudiated racial injustice. It doesn't take a non-believer to understand the unfairness of treating people differently just because of their color of their skin. Non-religious people recognize the inappropriateness of that. We have indeed moved from putting Japanese descendants into concentration camps. Even our world has seen that racial profiling is not a good thing. Even the, our world can see those things are, are wrong. Our world longs for love and peace. You get that? Society longs for love and peace. That's why it's so talked about all over the place. I'm going to date myself with these songs. I'm sorry, but I, I don't listen to much contemporary stuff, so bear with me. Some of you will remember these. 
What the world needs now is love, sweet love. That's what there's just too little love. Remember the Beatles song, Imagine? Imagine there is no suffering. Imagine there is no religion. Imagine all these things. Uh, Come along and join us. Or we are the world. As people gather together and sing and, and want to help alleviate poverty and suffering around the world. Even our world understands that. So you need to understand that Christian love is more than that. It's more than giving to those who are in need. UNICEF, all kinds of charities exist that many people are giving great amounts of money to who have never named the name of Christ. That is a given. That's what our world understands. And that's what they demand. And that's what they are looking for from us. And of course, we need to do those things as well. But we're to go beyond what our world thinks and does. That is a cheap imitation of what love really is. So the third reason is because the righteousness that is of the law demands it. Notice verse 48. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Perfect, complete, lacking nothing. Failing in no respect. This is the righteousness that the word of God depicts. Matthew 5.20, For I say unto you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. So conclusion. And I have quite a bit to say in conclusion. Verse 48 is a concluding statement, not just of that one example, but of the whole section. Therefore be ye perfect. In all of these ways, in all these six examples, we are to be living our lives. In all these ways, we're to be perfect. The Sermon on the Mount, though, isn't just about how to behave. It's about discovering the living God in his loving and dying Jesus and learning to reflect that love ourselves from the world that needs it so badly. The Sermon on the Mount is not just about isolated responses to a host of situations. It's not just about our behavior. It's not just about our actions. It certainly includes our actions. But in those early examples, time and time again, it was about the heart. It was about what motivated the actions. So it's not just about what we do. It's not even about simply a way of life. It's more than just consistently demonstrating acts of loving kindness and 
goodness. It is more than what we do. It is, in fact, about who we are. Notice verse 48. Therefore, you are to be perfect. Not just do things perfectly, but be perfect. God is perfect. God is holy. God is righteous. And because God is holy, and because God is righteous, and because God is good, and because God is loving, this is the way he acts. This is what he does. It's an expression of who he is. And so it is to be with us. That's why in Romans chapter 6, excuse me, in Matthew chapter 6, the next discussion is, don't do your acts of righteousness to be seen by men. Don't just perform good things. It's to come from the heart. It's to be of an essence of who we are. It's all about our hearts, our desires, our ambitions, our goals, our priorities. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, the Beatitudes that open the Sermon on the Mount said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Let me put that in a more modern terminology. To want to be righteous so bad you can taste it. To long to be righteous. To desire to be holy. To ache about being loving. And then all these actions will flow out quite naturally. Our world is longing for love in ways they don't even know. All of society is sick of living with evil. Nobody wants their life threatened. Nobody wants to send their children to school with the thought that someone may come in and begin to fire at random. There's not a single person on this planet that is okay with that. Nobody wants that. Everybody wants peace. Everyone hopes that everyone would get along. What is unique is the Christian recognizes 
that the peace and the love that mankind is seeking can only be found in a relationship with God. That's why blessed is the one who is a part of God's kingdom. We are the only ones that are ultimately going to know love and peace. One day, God's kingdom is going to be established. One day, we will live in perfect peace and righteousness. One day, Revelation 21, verse 3, will come to complete fruition. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them, and he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death, there shall no longer be any mourning, or crying, or pain, the first things have passed away. Don't you long to be in that existence? Wouldn't you love if that's the way this world was now? No more pain. No more sorrow. No more thievery. No more evil. All of it done away. This section of Matthew chapter 5 is a call to the people of God to be salt and light in this world. Salt, giving people a taste of this heavenly kingdom. And light, giving people a glimpse of this heavenly kingdom. Of giving people a taste of what it's like to be a son of our heavenly father. To reveal him and to let this world see what is ultimately coming to pass. And we transform this world as we are that salt, as we are that light, as we are living as people of the kingdom. Which means we live differently from those around us. And living differently doesn't mean we drive a buggy instead of a car, or we wear black clothes instead of gray clothes, or even we wear our hair a certain length. The difference is we love in truth. What everybody wants, we are uniquely to demonstrate it. And I submit to you, what will really differentiate genuine love from the cheap imitation is not even the love between a husband and a wife. All the world knows husbands are to love their wives and wives are to love their husbands. It's not even love for your children. Everybody knows that you should love your children. 
And we can find examples in our culture of people who love their children and love their wives. All that is good, but Jesus raises it to a new bar. And that is, he says, love your enemy. Those people who do you harm. Last week, we saw that we were not to retaliate. Now, we see we are to seek their well-being. People who would like to see us dead, we're to like to see their life spared. This is the person who, when an individual comes up for parole, goes to the parole hearing not wishing that that person would be placed back into solitary confinement or back into prison, but speaks in their behalf and wants them to go free. But it's far, far deeper than that. It's to desire their ultimate and future well-being. In the book of Revelation, we read this about a new heavenly city. And I saw no temple in it, for the Lord, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. No more need for light. The ultimate and final light has come. And the nations shall walk by its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. And in the daytime, for there shall be no night there, its gates shall never be closed, and there shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, and nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. I've done a series on life after death, and what I was trying to get across is that this future life is real. It's significant. And it's not just about us floating around in the clouds playing harps. There is going to be a bodily resurrection. We are going to live in homes like we live in now. We are going to be living on this earth. And there are going to be nations. And there are going to be cities. There's going to be a populace. But what is different is that it's nothing like this world now. Because evil and sin is done away. The consequences of the fall has been removed. And all that God had intended for Adam and Eve to experience before they entered into sin now is going to come to pass. And there's going to be no more evil. Our duty is to provide for this world a taste, just a taste of what that might be like. Just a small glimpse of what that might be like in the way in which we respond to those around us. And most 
importantly, and most significantly, we are to long for the well-being of our enemies. The most ungodly thing that can ever come out of a person's mouth, the most wicked utterance is, God damn you. To want to see the eternal destruction of someone that has angered you. What is to come out of our mouth is prayer. Pray for those who persecute you. Pray that they would come to faith. Pray that they would come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray that they can experience this wonderful and glorious kingdom in the future. Live your life to point people to the kingdom. To entice people to the kingdom. To instruct people on how to obtain the kingdom. And ultimately, pray. Pray. Think about who you struggle with. Think about the people that give you a hard time. Think about that miserable coworker, that unfair boss, that neighbor that's hard to get along with. Maybe somebody that stole from you. Maybe somebody that mugged you. What should we do? At the very least, put them on our prayer list. And when you put them on your prayer list, it's not for their destruction. It's not that God would get even with them. It's not that God would make them pay. But, oh God, here is a person who's in need of salvation. May they experience the love and the peace and the fulfillment that they so desperately want. Next time you listen to a song on the radio that's got love in it, and you can probably turn it on and find one today, just realize that the promise of God is, blessed are they who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Why? They shall be Fulfilled or satisfied, depending on your translation. Blessed, because you're going to experience it. You're going to know it. You're going to live it. One day, one day, we will know what it's all about. Let us live in anticipation of that day. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your mercy and grace to us. We thank you for your love that you demonstrated to us. But God commended his love toward us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Even while we were yet enemies, 
of the cross of Christ, Jesus bore our sin. Jesus died for us. Jesus sought us when we did not seek him. Jesus loved us when we did not ask him to come. Jesus died and rose again and entered into your presence so that he could make a place for us and we could go to be with him. Lord, help us to be a loving people, not in cheap imitations, but in reality, which in the bottom line is we want to see people helped, not harmed, that would respond to hurt with a desire to remove from that individual the impetus to cause that hurt. In a world that so desperately seeks peace and love and joy, oh God, help us to see that it's found in you and to take that message to others so that they might come to know the real joy, the real peace, the real love that they they desperately want. And oh God, so rule in our hearts, so bring us into subjection, so make us into the conformity of the Lord Jesus Christ that we show forth the radiance of the Father. And we give people a sense of what God is like in the way in which we treat them. May we be able to reveal the goodness and grace of God that they so easily overlook that the rain falls on them just like it falls on the just. And Lord, help us to understand when the rain doesn't fall on us, that it falls on the just and the unjust, and it fails to fall on the just and the unjust. Help us to reflect the grace and mercy of God. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.